All right. When you're ready, count us off and we'll do the thing. Okay. We're back into doing a news production. <laughs> you're I'm here for it. Okay. <laughs> Gathering us and in three, two, one. Welcome to Exchanges, a collection of conversation exchanges presented by the LGBTQ Youth Exchange for Change, exploring the truths, resiliency, and leadership of LGBTQ youth nationwide. I am Sheer Avery, a Black and Indigenous non-binary trans femme, creative visionary, published researcher, social justice advocate, and director of the LGBTQ Youth Exchange for Change, a national partnership between Lambda Legal and Baker McKenzie, sponsored by Warner Media. And I'm Elliot Hinkle, a transmasculine non-binary person and a former foster youth who grew up in the Wyoming foster care system and now advocates for youth in the child welfare system, young adult mental health needs and wellness, and the LGBTQ community. I'm based in Portland, Oregon as a Youth and Young Adult Coordinator for Oregon Healthy Transitions at Portland State University. Join Sheer and I in thought-provoking exchanges between young leaders, social justice advocates, pioneering researchers, business innovators, corporate allies, and media storytellers. Tune in, follow along, and join us in our change-making journey. To learn more, visit exchangeforchange.org and follow us on Twitter using the handle at LGBTQ Youth Exchange with an X and Instagram at Queer Youth Exchange with an X. Joining us for a preview of this week's second virtual exchange experience centering LGBTQ plus youth and foster care is Curry Cook, Senior Counsel and Youth and Out-of-Home Care Project Director at Lambda Legal. Lambda Legal is the nation's oldest and largest national legal organization committed to achieving full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and people with HIV. Curry advocates on behalf of LGBTQ plus youth in child welfare and juvenile justice settings and youth experiencing homelessness. He works at the state and federal level to achieve systemic reform through a mix of litigation, proactive law and policy development, and training for system professionals. Hey, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here and congratulations on this podcast. I'm very excited that this next exchange experience is going to focus on LGBTQ youth and foster care. Um, We know that LGBTQ youth are overrepresented in foster care compared to their non-LGBTQ peers, and they also experience higher rates of psychiatric hospitalizations, juvenile justice involvement, placement in group homes, and homelessness. And these disparities hit LGBTQ plus youth of color particularly hard, given that youth of color and youth from low-income families are driven into the system at disproportionately high rates due to systemic racism and other societal disparities. So focusing on this population is really, really important because of intersection of identities and just 
overwhelmingly negative experiences for LGBTQ plus youth of color in the child welfare system. Absolutely. Youth in care not only face challenges to their safety and well-being, but ongoing threats to their legal rights. At our second exchange experience on December 10th, you'll hear from LGBTQ plus youth who are system experts, and they'll lead a discussion on how to disrupt the system and support youth in out-of-home care. Join us to learn more, hear about examples of positive change, and exchange ideas to help create even more solutions. Register now on our website, exchangeforchange.org. Hey, Cher and Curry. I'm wondering, Curry, if you could share some numbers for us about folks who are in care and a little bit about what people do and don't know. Sure. Uh, it's interesting because over the years, there's just a mountain of anecdotal evidence about the overrepresentation of LGBTQ plus youth in the foster care system and about their negative experiences while in it, even though the system is, of course, supposed to help and uh, find the permanency and make sure that they're safe and well. Um, so we've known for years and years that LGBTQ youth are disproportionately represented in the system, um, but we actually haven't really had a whole lot of uh, hardcore data until recently. Um, the first really kind of landmark study was done back in 2013 as part of a federally funded demonstration project in Los Angeles that was focused on LGBTQ plus youth. And that study, which was a survey of over 700 youth in foster care found that 19.1% of those young people identified as LGBTQ. Mm. So our estimates in the general population are you know, not, not definitive or necessarily accurate, but around 10% say young people identify as LGBTQ in the general population. So that's about double, right? Uh, rate of disproportionate representation. Um, and since then, we've had um, some other studies done in, in places. One really notable one was just released a couple of weeks ago, and that was done by the Administration for Children's Services, the agency that runs the foster care system here in New York City, where I live. And they found that around 34% of the young people they surveyed in a similar way to the one that was done in Los Angeles, uh, identify as LGBTQ. So again, that that's pretty major. And if we're talking about a third of the young people in yeah. the system, then obviously that means, you know, our work is, I mean, it would be critical if it were just one, right? You, you know, the system's supposed to serve all young people. When you're talking about that proportion of your foster care population, that's major. So basically we sort of know that um, from, from some studies. There's a lot that we don't know. We've had um, a couple of studies, uh, we have some internal surveys done by folks like Facing Foster Care in Alaska, who found about 25% of their members in Alaska identify as LGBTQ. Um, but what we don't have uh, are nationwide mm -hmm. numbers or even really statewide numbers. These surveys that I mentioned were um, point in time, you know, phone surveys of young people in care, but they weren't actually recording the numbers as kids come into care. So we really don't have a sense at the state level or at the national level how many LGBTQ young people are in care. And that has really limited in a lot of ways our ability to measure outcomes. So we can't track nationwide 
how many placements LGBTQM people are having compared to their non-LGBTQ peers, or how much juvenile justice involvement they're having, or whether they disproportionately have permanent plans that mean they aren't back with their parents or with kin, you know, or in a stable family home. Um, you know, and these things are obviously like really critical um, to figuring out as a system, like how are we doing? And are we actually meeting the needs of the children that are in our care? Absolutely. Kari, <laughs> could you share a little bit for us about the AFCARS lawsuit? Yes, uh, I mentioned that we don't have nationwide data and about LGBTQ in care uh, or LGBTQ foster and adoptive parents as, as well. Um, and we recently filed a lawsuit uh, challenging a regulation that was put out by the Trump administration, which attempts to pull back um, some sexual orientation and data, uh, gender identity data questions that were put in place by the Obama administration. So uh, what happened is that it, there was um, a rule put out in 2016 by the Obama administration for the adoption and foster care analysis <laughs> and reporting system, just rolls right off the tongue, the AFCARS system. Uh, but this is sort of the wonky term for just gathering demographic information about young people, children that come into the foster care system, and then also gathering information about guardians, uh, foster and adoptive parents, and also uh, why, what the source of the conflict was at the time a child was removed from home, which is really important to tell us a little bit about, you know, what the experiences of the young person were in their home and, you know, kind of what, what's happening. So basically the Obama administration um, put out regulation for notice and comment about whether they should collect sexual orientation, gender identity information, and after a lot of support, um, overwhelming support from the LGBT advocacy community and from about half of the states and basically all you know, public interest groups that care anything about yeah. kids said, yes, you should, because we don't have nationwide data and we need it because we can't track these outcomes, like we said. Um, so they ended up with a rule that required states to collect sexual orientation information for kids 14 and over legal guardians, foster and adopted parents. Uh, they didn't include a gender identity information question um, in the 2016 rule, even though folks suggested that they should. Uh, so fast forward to May of this year and the Trump administration put out a regulation that pulled back, eliminated the sexual orientation data elements for young people and for foster and adopted parents and legal guardians. And also notably, pulled back a bunch of data elements related mm. to implementation of the Indian Child Welfare Act. So basically just the requirements of states to make sure that they were following the Indian Child Welfare Act and making sure that American Indian and Alaska Native young people were you know, placed with their families or if not with their families, the tribal members or in their communities. Um, so we filed a lawsuit uh, challenging that move as a violation of the Administrative Procedure Act um, and the plaintiffs in the case are facing foster care in Alaska, um, and of course have you know, Alaska Native LGBTQ members um, as part of their, their group. Um, the Cherokee Nation, the Yurok Tribe, California Tribal Families Coalition, um, two organizations that do great work serving LGBTQ young people in their communities, True Colors in Connecticut and Ruth Ellis Center in Detroit, 
And then on behalf of the Arc of Freedom Alliance, which is an organization that serves LGBTQ uh, survivors of trafficking in South Florida. AFCARS also requires trafficking, um, has trafficking data points, information about whether young people have been victims of trafficking, but we, without the data about sexual orientation and gender identity, we can't compare you know, whether LGBTQ youth have been victims of trafficking on a state or nationwide level, even though we know from studies and a whole lot of anecdotal information that LGBTQ folks do you know, engage in survival sex or sex work as a means to survive um, often. Um, so, you know, we hope that, um, you know, we can get this uh, lawsuit resolved with the new administration. Yeah. So we'll see. <laughs> Thank you. Curry, I know that you have some experience in Alaska. Can you talk a little bit about that as well as facing foster care Alaska? And what are some of the outcomes um, from these recent studies? What are the results of us not having state or national numbers? Yeah, I actually finished law school in Georgia. I grew up in Georgia and finished law school in Georgia and then moved to Anchorage, Alaska, all places. And my first job out of law school was representing young people in foster care cases and in delinquency cases as well. And I mean, of course, a lot of people don't know uh, much about Alaska in general, much less the foster care system in Alaska. Um, but one thing I learned there when I started was that Alaska Native children are placed into care in Alaska at really astronomically high, disproportionately high rates. So while Alaska Native children are about 19% of the population, they represent about 60% of the population in care. And you know, when we talk about systemic racism, structural racism and its impact you know, on children and families, the foster care system is a big place, right? A lot of Alaska Native and American Indian young people were wholesale you know, removed from their homes, sometimes in the name of religion or in getting them with quote, better families. And by that, you meant white families. Right? So that's sort of a reality of this legacy of racism um, and colonization that still persists in Alaska. Um, and even when I was you know, practicing there some 15, 20 years ago, you know, I was representing some LGBTQ young people and the system was just, didn't really know what to do. Um, it was really a sort of a don't ask, don't tell, let's just keep this quiet kind of thing. Um, and even I, as a, as a lawyer, was, wasn't comfortable being out to many people because of fear, you know, what would happen and would I be able to see my clients and meet with them privately? Um, or would I be, you know, face some sort of of backlash or discrimination from other people in the system or parents. So, you know, it was just a different world. Um, but fast forward to this point in time, you know, we're still don't actually, aren't collecting any information in Alaska about LGBTQ youth and care. So there are a lot more young people that are out and they're sort of out because of broader changes in society, but aren't actually having a better systemic response, even though there've been broader changes. Um, so we can't really measure what their outcomes are compared to their non-LGBTQ peers. And then the other thing that we, that I think has been a major change and was getting going when I was there was uh, this organization facing foster care in Alaska uh, that was started by some former foster youth, uh, one of whom is going to speak at the exchange event on, on the 10th of December. 
Um, and they started to really like have the young people driving change. And they have really been a force of nature in um, having the legislature uh, provide more funds, make systemic changes happen, center the voices of young people in their work. And then also they have been really supportive of the LGBTQ young people that are part of Facing Foster Care in Alaska and advocating on their behalf. So that's just been tremendous to see, you know, young people with system experience themselves uh, really leading the change um, and forcing change. Can you talk a little bit about the precedent um, that it sets for downfalls and not collecting information and not having state or national data? Sure. I think the most fundamental one is just without data in this world today, you're invisible. And we know that historically, LGBTQ youth and society in general, and then particularly in foster care, have really been uh, somewhat invisible. And so whenever you start talking with state governments, to welfare agencies about, oh, we should have a policy about this, we should do training on this topic, one of the first questions you get is, well, how many are there? Like, in my busy day, in my resource-stretched world, why should I be focusing on this instead of something else? So that becomes a challenge. And then we're also moving into a place where folks are wanting evidence-based practices. You know, how do you show that this intervention actually works? And if we're not collecting data around LGBTQ young people and families, then we have no way to show what we're doing is working or if it's helping. Um, so those are, are two of the big barriers, I think. Um, another is just that governments put out you know, requests for contracts or proposals for services. And if we don't actually know what the numbers are, then for example, they may not be able to justify putting out a request for services for parents designed to promote family acceptance, for mm. example. So, you know, you end up with these sort of cookie cutter, not tailored services because you don't have the data to drive the funding for services. So that I think is an, is an obvious impediment to actually helping children and families, you know, be well um, and be together. I know Sheer and, and Elliot, we've had a chance over the course of the Exchange for Change project and developing and putting on these events to talk a little bit about your own experiences in foster care. And I was just sort of curious hearing, you know, some of the outcomes from these studies and what we're hearing from other youth, how those relate to both of your experiences. In yeah, for me, um, I grew up in foster care in Wyoming. So the, the kind of rural experience of foster care is where I really tap in and want to like support that work. So I'm always glad for the work that we're doing around that at the exchange. Um, I grew up in foster care because I always describe it as I grew up in foster care because I was there when I was 15 to 19. So it felt like the time of my life where I had to grow up. Um, and I didn't actually come out fully as a queer person, as a lesbian at that time. Um, until I left foster care. And then it wasn't until a couple of years later when I was living in Portland, Oregon and felt established enough that then I also came out as trans because I didn't feel like I had all the supports I needed and I wasn't quite sure if everyone was going to stick around. And I definitely didn't get that security living in Wyoming um, in a religious community 
And so it's always been really important to me to figure out how do we not forget the rural youth and how do we work on this in child welfare and other systems because LGBTQ youth, they do exist. And as you said about the numbers, if the numbers don't show it, then we don't exist. And it's that much easier for us to experience harm because folks think that we're not there and we totally are. Yeah, we're here. Well, for me, I went in and out of the foster care system between the ages of 10 and 16 in Los Angeles County, California. And I learned early on that I needed to be my biggest advocate. And I think that's a piece of supporting young people that isn't talked about enough, especially as it relates to LGBTQ foster youth. Um, You know, I learned that you either swim or you sink. And I became my biggest advocate and advocated on behalf of my needs from school to family reunification to tailored services um, that allowed me to find myself, that connected me with mentorship opportunities and um, programs that were tailored for LGBTQ youth. And so I think to, to the points about us needing to have more data, we need to allow young people to really speak for themselves and to drive that data, to inform that data um, so that we can, you know, really make sure that young people in care have all of the services that they need and are part of creating that change. Yeah. Amen. (laughs) Right. And I I think that, you know, is an interesting piece about the data collection is that I, there has been a lot of hesitancy on behalf of adults about, oh, should we ask, you know, isn't this private information? Is this our business? You know, aren't we going mm-hmm. to like offend some people? And I mean, for me, I think a piece of that is generational, um, you know, in that 15, 20 years ago, if someone had asked me directly about my sexual orientation and gender identity I might have just like painted I don't know what I would have done but but you know it's 2020 um and I'd be curious to hear you know both of your thoughts about you know asking and people obviously we you know people have to have some training and information about how to do it right and respectfully um but but assuming that's in place I I was curious if either of you have thoughts about you know, about having proactive conversations with young people about Yeah, that. I mean, I think knowing that when I when I did like life skills coaching with young people in foster care, I wanted to be a safe place that they could talk about anything. So I think also proactively, even just being out in my work felt important so that young people, it was kind of like that flag you're putting out on the door of like, this is a safe place. So I just want like someone to know, yeah, I'm queer too. We don't have to talk about it but I absolutely will talk about it with you and I want you to have that visibility. And it was the same thing when I went back to Wyoming and did some pride work. I was like, I wanna be out and visible because I didn't see me growing up. And so that meant that I was like in the closet that much longer. So I think having those conversations are, are a, it's a piece to me of like suicide prevention basically is making sure that young people know that they don't need to hide this and that people exist like themselves. Yeah. I'm getting a little emotional over this question. Because mm. yeah. you're absolutely right, Elliot. It is about suicide prevention. Yeah. And empowering young people to feel 
empowered and to have the autonomy to live their lives as their full authentic selves. And I think it's not just that we are in 2020, but enough harm has already been done. Simply asking a young person to speak for themselves, to share their thoughts, to share their dreams, their aspirations, as connected to who they are, as connected to their identity, that's one of the most important things anyone can do if they're connected to a young person, if they're a parent, if they're a teacher, if they're a social worker, if they're a judge. I remember my judge offering me the grace to listen and to allow my voice to be heard in court and just how impactful that was for me to get the services that I needed to avoid reunifying with my father who subjected me to conversion therapy, um, who uh, that was helpful in allowing me to access education in a safe and affirming learning environment. And those are the kinds of, that's the kind of support that young people need. Maria in our last episode, in our first episode, talked a lot about how young people know who they are at a very early age and we just need to listen so i don't think it's about us just being in 2020 and miraculous miraculously we're just gonna like blink and everything's gonna be okay it's constant work that we're all needing to do yeah absolutely great and i couldn't agree more and the just i mean i been thinking about it a lot lately in the like asking is caring way um you know flipping the script from oh i may say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing to um you know asking someone about who they are in all aspects including their race and their ethnicity and you know their ability and all of those things like when you're in care all of those things are relevant like those are all things that this state has to care about and that put your safety and well-being you know on the line all the time. And I think to your point, Sheer, you know, there have been a lot of bad things that have happened and continue to happen because we are just sort of looking the other way or not asking the questions that we need to ask about identity and experiences. And it's, you know, it's way past time for that to be over. So I think that our, our discussion about experiences in care really leads into another one about, you know, what are the interventions that should be in place that unfortunately really just aren't in most places around the country. And a big one is really thinking about how to promote family acceptance, knowing that rejection by parents is really one of the main driving factors in the overrepresentation of LGBTQ youth in care. And we know that some of the services out there that do promote family acceptance are really successful, but in most communities and most child welfare systems, they don't really exist in any concrete way. And so we're really kind of missing the boat on making sure that if young people can be safely at home that they are, or even if they can't, that they are having opportunities to 
work on having a better relationship with parents or relatives, which we know, you know, really promotes well-being for all of us, but particularly for young people in care. Um, and I think the other, you know, another big one is just if, you know, if young people can't go home, then really having a supportive network of, of finding kin that are, that can be a good placement and supportive or having foster families are supportive. We know that LGBTQ youth end up in congregate care disproportionately. So once you end up in the group home, you know, residential treatment center cycle, then those are kind of recipes for homelessness, which we know that LGBTQ youth face at really shockingly high rates. So uh, I think in addition to, you know, making sure that you have affirming um, behavioral health and medical care while in care, those, you know, efforts to make sure that you can be with your own family and your own community, and if not, at least be with a family. I think what has felt frustrating for me in you know, the past four years or so was that knowing that for sure people were still doing the grassroots LGBTQ work. So I think of Dominique, right? Like Dominique is not a person who was probably going to disappear. She was doing all the work. And there was this disappearance from the state and federal level of like a lot of LGBTQ initiatives and work. Um, and I remember watching that and feeling unsettled. And I think I was still a young enough professional that I didn't ask as many questions at that point, but I noticed it. Um, and so I think what feels hopeful to me and when I think about interventions is that the hope would be in the next four years, um, more of that work shows up in the ways that are gonna really help. So the visibility being such an important piece of this that we're talking about it really loudly that it's hard to avoid the reality of like, we need to be talking about LGBTQ youth and this isn't an optional training. This isn't an optional uh, intervention or whatever that may be because I, you know, my stomach turned when I learned of like caseworkers who are the primary worker who get all the LGBTQ youth um, because they're the person who will work with them. Like that's not how that's supposed to go. You're all supposed to be able to do this just as much as I would hope all doctors can serve all trans patients like in a perfect world, right? Um, that it's not a specialty on its own. And right. so I think that is what I want to see more of and the focus on wellness. So it's not just trans and queer youth surviving, but thriving that they're doing well and they're getting all the things that any other youth would be kind of getting developed into them. So I think that's that's something I think about. Yeah, and I think that translates perfectly into our question about Fulton versus Philly and the recent Supreme Court um, hearing and the precedent that that set really to think about the safety and well-being and civil rights of LGBTQ plus um, youth in care. Curry, can you share an overview um, of, of the Supreme Court hearing and why this is such an important case? Sure. So just the day after the election to, to November 4th, uh, when you know much of the world was not paying attention to a Supreme Court argument on that day, the Supreme Court heard a case, Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, uh, that was actually uh, brought by Catholic Social Services um, and some foster parents in Philadelphia. Um, there were some press reports that came out that one of the contract agencies uh, Bethany Christian Services in Philadelphia that had a contract to license and recruit foster parents had turned away a same-sex couple who was trying to foster. And so then the city of Philadelphia uh, just asked around and 
trying to find out where there are other agencies who were refusing to license same-sex couples and Catholic Social Services also refuses. Um, Catholic Social Services had a contract with the city of Philadelphia that spelled out that they had to follow city of Philadelphia ordinance that prohibited discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, um, but yet they were refusing to serve uh, same-sex couples and were had a government contract or receiving government funding. So ultimately they, they sued Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia still works with Catholic Social Services. They have a group home, they do case management services, but they um, refused to sign a contract saying that they would comply with non-discrimination law. Um, and so now we have this lawsuit, both the district court and the appellate court said that, yes, uh, a government has a compelling interest to have a system that does not discriminate against youth and families across the board, um, especially in the context of uh, a government putting out a contract. Um, you know, Catholic Social Services doesn't have to sign up to be a foster care agency, it's up to them, right? And then also we know that foster care is a government function. Um, so, you know, the question before the Supreme Court is, is uh, sort of on a narrow basis is whether, you know, agencies like Catholic Social Services across the country who contract with child welfare systems and receive government funds can actually use a religious test to decide they're going to serve, which may turn away LGBT people or could be, you know, people of a different faith, right? It could be turning away Jewish people or you know, Protestant people or whoever doesn't, you know, match with that agency's religion. Um, but the, the big, big picture is this could mean that agencies could decide to, you know, turn away LGBTQ youth and refuse to serve them, or even more broadly, say, uh, you know, a provider with a government contract to provide food assistance could refuse to serve people who don't meet its religious test, or people providing services for folks experiencing homelessness could refuse to serve uh, folks that aren't part of the religion or that, you know, they have religious views about. Um, so it's really, uh, I think, uh, concerning um, that the Supreme Court has taken this case. And, you know, hopefully there will be a, a narrow ruling at the very, very least. What you're mentioning about it doesn't just impact, you know, future potential foster parents, it, it absolutely impacts foster youth that are LGBTQ or may not be out yet, but may come, come to discover who they are. And without those affirming families, um, it has an impact then on those youth feeling affirming homes and finding that. And for me, growing up in Wyoming, like I had religious families um, that some were, you know, they weren't not affirming, but they definitely weren't saying, yes, you can be queer here. I didn't come out to my foster mom who I was with for the majority of my time in care until I was out of care because I remember we were watching Grey's Anatomy and Arizona kisses Callie. And I remember her saying like, ew. And that moment as, as a young person was like, okay, so I can't come out to you. That's all I needed to know. <laughs> and so I'll just keep this inside and we'll just do the thing. And when I left care, I was so close to this faith community because I hadn't made a permanent like adopted family that I was willing to do whatever I needed to, to be accepted in that community. And that came then with the trappings of, well, then you can't be gay. We know that you're interested in a woman and we're going to help you get through this. 
And so I went through about six months of that before I left the church and it kind of felt like leaving foster care again. It was like everything I built is gone again and I'm going to just, I'll start over again because I can't do this. So I think this case is just really important for young people, whether or not they're LGBTQ, it sets like a dangerous precedent if this is allowed to occur. Right. And we should have standards of care that are exemplary of affirming and acceptance. Um, I think this is really a wake up call for people who have the care and the capacity to be foster parents um, to, to become foster parents. We need more loving, affirming and accepting foster um, homes and families for um, young people, LGBTQ or not. Um, it really is about setting young people up for success um, in a home environment that really fosters wellness. Absolutely. I mean, we know that LGBT folks are underutilized resource out there in terms of being foster and adopted parents because they have faced historical discrimination. I mean, it was only in 2010 that Florida ended its ban on so-called gay adoption. That's not that long ago. And and still, you know, face ongoing discrimination. Now 11 states have laws or policies that allow faith-based agencies to use a religious litmus test and turn away people and still get government funds. And I think what happens for a lot of folks in the LGBT community is, you know, the technicalities of these laws gets lost a little bit. And the message that comes out is you're not welcome. Or as we know, it's challenging for folks to be able to step up and be foster parents. You have to meet all these requirements. You have to have space in your home. You have to really, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's tough. And, and so why we would want to have a system that sets up any barriers or excludes anyone who's willing to take all those steps and step up is beyond me, right? It, it should just be a no-brainer. <laughs> the, the, the fewer exclusions and, you know, exclusionary criteria we use, the more we are opening up the playing field for everybody to play a role. And, and I think to your point, Elliot, um, you know, what, what that means is then that we can say to young people that we really have an entire system that is welcoming for you, right? So you know that whenever you're ready, it is safe for you to come out. And we are still unfortunately far from there. And I, I do really worry that um, a decision by the Supreme Court allowing some people who play a role in the systems being able to decide uh, who it is that they will serve um, really sends exactly the wrong message to young people in care. So as we all know, unsurprisingly, the past four years have been difficult for our community when it comes to who is in the White House and the administration that's kind of been um, in charge. And so thinking of that, I'm curious, Curry, um, what thoughts you have about what you're hopeful about in the upcoming administration? Yeah, it, it has been a rough past three and a half, almost four years now. I mean, this administration has taken some concrete actions to endorse and allow discrimination in the context of child welfare, explicitly allowed and supported government-funded contract child welfare agencies to turn away same-sex couples or use a religious litmus test. 
for the folks that they serve, which is you know really harmful to our community and expanding placement options for young people in care, as we've talked about, and also you know announced back in November of 2019 that they were not going to enforce non-discrimination protections for sexual orientation, gender identity, and religion, which are the only place in federal law uh, where youth and families in the child welfare system are explicitly protected. So. Needless to say, I guess, given my job at Lambda Legal and what I do, I'm very hopeful and excited about having a new administration that you know, has already explicitly signaled very publicly that they're supportive of LGBTQ folks and that we know is going to put in an administration, child welfare, juvenile justice, you know, the folks, federal agencies working on youth homelessness, just all across the board are going to be affirming and supportive for LGBTQ youth. So I think that they'll be able to pick up on some of the good progress that was made during the Obama administration and really go forward. And, um, and I also think this is going to be an administration that is very excited about uh, working with young people and letting young people in care you know, lead. And I think that will be true of LGBTQ plus young people um, and so that I think that will be just a huge shift from where we've been in past years and certainly this past <laughs> three and a half or four years. Um, but I was curious what, you know, what you all see from, from your ex experience of both, you know, having been involved with the child welfare system historically, but also currently in your advocacy, you know, around LGBTQ plus youth and the child welfare system. Uh, what are the things that, that give you hope right now? Sheer, you want to go first? Yeah, Curry, I think that these last four years have been brutally long. And at the same time, I honestly can't believe that it's been four years already. Just how much time has passed and how much damage has been done. It feels long, but it, at the same time, it doesn't feel like it's been four years. So much has happened in such a short amount of time. I think that there is hope. There is great amount of hope. And I don't think that hope lies solely on the result of the election. I think there's a lot of hope in the leadership of young people who have been moving the needle, who have been at the forefront of our social justice movements, who are continuing to carry on the legacy of our ancestors. I've said for years that young people will be the longevity of our social justice movements and we need to have we need to have supports in place to foster their leadership development and I think what we've seen over the last 4 years is young people really take a firm stand and say no this is not okay yes I have a voice in this conversation it's not enough for me or for us to just be seen and not heard. We need to be involved every step of the way. Um, and if we're not, we're going, to, we're going to be regardless. However, at the same time, I do think that Biden comes with a commitment to doing right by people. I think despite his history in the Senate, despite some of the grotesque missteps with the criminal rights bill, 
excuse me, the criminal justice bill. Um, I think that there is a commitment to do right by people. And I hope that he holds true to his word of creating an administration that is reflective of America, that is reflective of everyday people and of communities that are marginalized and oppressed and often not welcomed to the work that we're all doing. I do remember a post that I read at the beginning of Trump's term back in 2017. I remember being at Creating Change in Washington, D.C. and how um, that moment felt. It really felt like an unprecedented shift. And I remember seeing one of my friends post online that they weren't scared. Yes, they were worried about what was to come, but they weren't scared. They were looking forward to the art that was to come about, the protest that was to come about from Trump's term um, and moment in office. And I thought how, one, I was so perplexed, but when I reflected on it, I thought how audacious, how audacious to still have hope in a moment where we knew we would be intentionally harmed and to think about the creativity that young people and that communities inherently hold. And I think we need to carry that on in these next four years. I think movements became comfortable and complacent during the Obama administration. And that's part of the reason why we we're in the mess we've been in for the last four years. And so I think we need to, to hold on to our rage, our disappointment, and our commitment to creating art, to being in community with one another, and fostering the leadership that will sustain us, regardless to who's in office. I, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that is, um, if anything, I think maybe for a lot of folks and understandably like you're not really you know necessarily dealing with government agencies these big federal administrations you know the different branches of of government and um on a day-to-day basis like we've sort of seen the severe impact like awful people in those roles can have on folks everyday lives and during this pandemic all you know maybe some folks who weren't really cognizant of the way they were relied on government or understand better what that is and you know can now relate to the need to keep up the pressure and not be complacent and, and to speak out so I, I think those are amazing points oh yeah how about you things that you're hopeful about yeah i think for me this was um a, i'm like grateful is not the right word but there's something about I think you know my coming of age and like my 20s in this time period that has taught me some really important lessons for the rest of my life so I can't put all my hope in an administration I think that's something as a younger person you know there was a lot of like the president and it changing blue to red makes all the difference and it's like it it has an impact for sure But I don't need to put all my hope in who's in office. It's also the people who the past four years have continued the work 
um, have fought against things, even knowing that it may not work out, um, you know, and regardless of the administration, now we have to worry about the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. right? So there's some things that I've learned in this process that I wouldn't wish all of the harm again, but I'm glad to understand, I think, my adult world better um, and to not put all of my hope in some of the, the wrong places, I guess. I'm hopeful too, though, about what this means for child welfare work, because I think I've, I've been sad about feeling like a lot of work that I've done in the past four years had to be like secretly working on LGBTQ issues. Like, of course, we were talking about child welfare, but um, even racial justice was some things that I think were people were tiptoeing around and, you know, providing support to folks, but not wanting to say it too loudly. So they also so they wouldn't get shut down from doing it if they were more federally connected. And so I'm really hopeful for that work coming back. And again, that's something I've learned of like, just because folks say that they can't because of whoever they're connected to doesn't mean that I can't or that other people shouldn't. Um, like we'll find a way <laughs> we're going to do that work. And so I am hopeful though for the fact that the president-elect is very openly, you know, it seems confidently talking about trans people, right? Um, in, in a way that like is just unprecedented. And so not all of my hope will be in Biden, but I do appreciate for like the, the change that that will usher in because we're tired, <laughs> we're ready for something different. And I think some really good stuff is going to come out of this. And my, my last hope is really that, I think like Sheer said that we, we won't just like go back to sleep that, you know, this fight could come back up in four years. We kind of know that that's, that's bubbling already. And so there's still work to do this whole time, not just to go to sleep, like rest for maybe a minute, but let's get back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Share. Uh, sure. No, I was just yawing in agreement. I do think that we will have the comfort of at least being welcomed with open arms at the White House. I think the president-elect has made it clear from his acceptance speech that trans people will be accepted and will be protected in this administration. And I don't think that we have time to rest. I don't think there's time for us to, with all that's happening, there's so much to recover from. And so I do hope that we can take a moment collectively to pause and take a deep breath together um, and get back to work. Um, not in the capitalistic productivity um, sense of work, but in the work that connects us all to each other from a humanity perspective. There's too much to lose and we're all we have. So I'm, I'm with you, Elliot and Curry holding the hope that's there um, for what's to come. What were you going to say, Craig? Listening to you all, I was just thinking about the, the title of the virtual experience on the on December 10th of the visible and demanding change. And that's just one thing that really gives me hope is the visibility of LGBTQ plus youth in care. I was thinking about speaking at the statewide conference for court appointed special advocates in Arizona last year. And I think there were like 
5,000 people in the room or something. And I asked, you know, how many of you have been working with an LGBTQ plus youth this last year? And I think 80% of the people in the room raised their hand, right? So just, you know, it's young people being themselves and being out that are making the change. Now, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily getting a good response from people or getting their needs met or safe or well, but I think we have crossed the point of, oh, they're just, you know, why are we talking about this? There aren't that many of you. Back to our conversation earlier about data and all of that, you know, even though we may not have the nationwide data yet, we have every single day at the local level, you know, young people being visible and saying, I'm here, this is who I am, this is what I need. Um, and that, that gives me a lot of hope. With the visibility we have <laughs> now for LGBTQ youth in conjunction with the advocacy that young people are leading, can you speak to why it's important to provide young people the autonomy to advocate for, for themselves, to have access to equitable, trans-affirming healthcare while in care, and the importance of child advocates? Sure. I, I think, you know, it goes hand in hand. And I know, Sherry, you're now part of the National Association of Council for Children Youth Advisory Board, which, you know, is really just a, an example of some of the youth with lived experience driving the conversation, driving policy, you know, driving how the system should respond um, and meet their needs. And that includes, of course, Absolutely. You know, having effective representation. Like we know there's just an enormous difference when young people have attorneys who are advocates for their expressed interests, um, not their best interests, but their expressed interest in mm -hmm. what they are articulating that they need. Um, and the same for parents, right, in, in cases. But particularly for young people, I mean, I have seen in my role on the National Association Council for Children Board and then my role at Lambda Legal, just a lot of trans young people in care who are trying to access affirming behavioral health and medical services and just face countless barriers where people just say, mm -hmm. oh, you're too young. You're too young to know that. You're too young to make a decision or just wait till you're 18 or, or even just saying things like we don't do that, which is just flat out not true, <laughs> right? Um, and also contrary to um, both the constitutional rights of young people in care um, to, to safety and well-being and equal protection, but also you know, a real issue around what we know in federal and state law our child welfare agency's obligations to uh, ensure safety, permanency, and well-being. And, and particularly what we know, as we talked about a little bit earlier around, you know, the incredibly high rates of like yeah. self-harm and suicide for trans youth and, and how critical affirming healthcare is to making sure that the young people are safe and well. Um, mm -hmm. This should just be a no-brainer when you're in the business of child welfare that you're providing you know, recommended care, um, but accessing qualified providers, you know, treating this healthcare just as you would other recommended healthcare is still a real barrier. And it's really essential for 
young people to have the space to know that having a conversation about who they are with their lawyers and having lawyers who are receptive and also are equipped to advocate, to ask the right questions, to listen, to advocate, to center what the young person is telling them that they need um, is really essential. Um, so I think the combination of ensuring access to high quality representation and making sure young people are engaged and driving yeah. the conversation are kind of two pieces yes, of the that go, Indeed, they definitely go together. Go together. I think that one of the most impactful things child welfare advocates can can do is really be a professional friend to their clients to really foster a relationship that makes the young person feel safe um, to speak for themselves to share their needs and that results in a care plan that can be developed that really encompasses the young person as their whole selves. I think about how impactful that was for me in connection to my lawyer while in foster care and how I felt is that besides myself, I had someone to look to who had my best interest in heart. And that was such a comfort in knowing that I wasn't judged. I, we may not have seen eye to eye, but I was always centered. My, my needs, my wishes were always centered. And I think, you know, what you said, Curry, I'm not recalling it exactly, but, you know, the, when we're, how did you say it? You said that it's not the best interest of, but it's the, the expressed interest yeah, the expressed interest, what, like, you know, what, exactly. what you're saying you need. We yeah, need more we of that. Is best for you. Um, right. And I think NACC, National Association of Council for Children, um, <laughs> that's, their, that's their driving force to really make sure that young people have um, what they need and um, counsel to make that happen. Well, and I think the other thing that you're saying here that's I hope people hear in this is the importance of young people having, and I'm so glad you used this term here because I've never known what to call it, but a professional friend, right? So there's a lot of worry about boundaries with young people, and I get it. It's usually for the safety of young people and for adults. But the reality is, like, we are humans and we need connections. Yeah. So there's a way to do that. And so I think the term of, like, professional friend is so accurate especially for like LGBTQ youth, youth of color who are going to feel particularly disconnected in these yeah. moments to have people who are like, yes, I'm, I'm here to represent you, but I also can show some care for you and I can connect mm. with you. Um, I really appreciate Hashtag that. professional friend. That was coined here on the second episode <laughs> of Exchanges. And also goes back to uh, part of our prior conversation about the you know, data yeah. collection and asking about yeah. who you are, that asking is caring. And, you know, this is, this is something that we know if we don't understand, you know, who our friends are and who our, our professional friends are, our clients in child welfare cases, lawyers for kids, then, you know, we're not going to be hearing them and what they need um, unless we're asking the right questions and, you know, 
being open to the answers and, and letting those drive us in our advocacy. So in addition to lawyers asking their clients about their sexual orientation and gender identity, they should also be asking about how they identify in terms of their race and religion, because we know that the child welfare system right, is just an example of systemic racism and why youth of color and families of color are settled in and that kids in care are not treated equally. And if we don't ask young people how they identify in terms of their race and how their experiences are, we're never going to begin to get at you know, the racism that exists in the system. And uh, like we talked about with Fulton, in the Fulton v. City of Philadelphia case that the Supreme Court just heard, there are a lot of faith-based agencies that provide services in the child welfare system and have historically. And a lot of them have been really fantastic and you know, affirming to LGBTQ youth and families, but some have not. And we also know, of course, that kids of all faith come into the system. And you know, many of the agencies may just be of a particular faith and you know, the right to practice your religion or not practice any religion at all is a constitutional right young people have in care. But unless we're having a conversation with young people about those issues explicitly, it's just really, we can't really address them. Um, so part of you know, what I think you mentioned earlier, Shira, about just you know, you know, your whole self and thinking about all aspects of identity and really having conversations about that is I think critical. To, to moving forward and making sure that young people are safe and well. Yeah, I think something that's that good to just touch on here is the the reality is for faith-based agencies, and I think it kind of holds for child welfare too, is like, these are not your kids. Young people are in foster care involuntarily. Um, they, they're not choosing to be there generally. I would say I was a person who sought out care, but not because I wanted it. <laughs> I wanted my family to be fine but that's what I needed. And um, the other thought I have is that, you know, after conversion therapy for me, faith had been a big thing in my life. And then I really moved away from that. And that was a big process for me. But what was important for me was to register that I can have my struggles with faith and not need to basically tear it down. Because what I know is faith can also be a, a form or like a method of survival for folks, even queer folks. And so if anything, I want to at least advocate for affirming faiths. So queer and trans folks being able to practice their faith and not have to shelve their whole identity, because I think that absolutely exists. And so I think that is like this nuanced piece that we haven't quite figured out, but um, is important. Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, these are not your kids is, is a really important framing that, which is another way to say sort of this is a this is a government function, right? We're coming in here, you know, these are young people that we know many shouldn't have been removed at all. Like if they had the support, families had the support in the community that they needed to start with, or we were really truly, you know, addressing systemic issues like poverty and racism and lack of housing. But even if we were doing a better job of preventive services, right? But, you know, if you're coming at this, work in the system because your faith tells you this is a way to serve, fantastic. If you're coming in to the way to help these young people is to make sure they find this particular religion 
or this particular faith or we need to make sure they're only exposed to these people because that's that practice this faith because that's how they're going to be well and healthy yeah not the place for that right and and this is you know one of my worries about this creeping in of allowing your particular like faith tradition to dictate the folks you will or won't serve right or the folks or in the context of right this agency miracle hill in greenville south carolina you know they were telling jewish folks and catholic folks that they couldn't even volunteer to be mentors for kids that they were caring for so that to me is just you know a, a, a sort of a degree of difference even from just the fostering of like we're not even going to allow the young people who aren't our kids <laughs> to have contact with someone of a different faith because we think that's bad for them i mean this you know just makes no sense in this context or, or any really like in terms of like you know young people needing as much support as possible rather than limiting people they can have access to so yeah i think that's a really you know useful way to to sort of articulate the realities of who's in care and why and that, you know, foster care is a government function. And so there should be clear requirements around non-discrimination um, to make sure that people, children and families get to be who they are and are subjected to, you know, proselytization, doctrinal statements or, you know, beliefs from wherever they come about who you should be and how you should live and what you should believe. Absolutely. So does this mean we're moving on to the closing? Before we go, here's a thought. What does the incoming administration and their commitment to affirming LGBTQ people mean for LGBTQ plus youth in foster care at the intersections of pipelines from homelessness to incarceration, what will us being accepted with open arms at the White House actually mean? My hope is that it would mean that there's going to be a lot of work to cover ground that was lost, I think, in this this administration. But my hope would be that it looks like the people who are in the White House, whether it's positions or visiting, look like the American people, which I know is their goal, but I hope that that carries throughout the entire administration. So when they're thinking of creating new child welfare policy, they're thinking of who's at the table to fully speak to that experience, and are we also talking to the education system while we're talking to the child welfare system, while we're talking to the justice system, because they don't always communicate very well. So. If that connection could be made, I just wonder how different policy would look and what impact then that kind of trickles down, hopefully. But we will see. We shall see. Yeah, I think one one just basic shift that this should mean is this current administration has had a focus on providers and what providers need and what providers think and what providers' faith is rather civil rights are rather than actually the young people that they're charged with protecting and caring for and their families and what their experiences and their rights and their needs are so you know it's really should be you know just a, a core thing that never changes but we saw that change so 
I, I think, you know, what you articulated here, I think should mean a focus back on um, just the basic understanding of, of who it is that are the beneficiaries of these systems and, you know, who we're just for a minute uh, thinking of the, the benevolence that the system is supposed to have if it were working correctly and that should be focused on yeah, families of course i on think the, on the providers right if anything this current administration has shown us what negligence is their approach has been an abdication of responsibility to the wellness of young people in care especially lgbtq youth um, and particularly black and brown young people in foster care. And so I think this incoming administration offers some hope that that responsibility will be renewed and that wellness will be centered. And I hope that it, to your point, Elliot, I hope that the administration is reflective of, of communities who have too long been silenced, who are deserving and also by virtue need to inherit many seats at the table. I hope that the administration will keep true to its commitment. And I think that will, I think just representation in and of itself is so powerful because people at the table with direct lived experiences can create change. Our second virtual exchange experience is going to take place on Thursday, December 10th from 12.30 p.m. Eastern to 2.30 p.m. Eastern. Elliot, let's talk about it. Why this topic? Why are these opportunities for corporate leaders, business innovators, and young people to come together to exchange ideas and create change. Why, why is this so important? Yeah, I think it's so important because we want to hear diverse stories. We want to hear from young people directly what's going on and what could happen. Um, and this is just a great place to bring leaders together, young, old, experienced, new, to be thinking about this creatively and hopefully to inspire that. So when folks leave the experience, they're ready to go take away and do something with that work. So I think getting people there and having the conversations and making new connections is really what it's all about. And getting to do that again after the first one feels really exciting. Yeah, I am super excited, especially as we head into the holiday season it's so important that we center LGBTQ youth in foster care and LGBTQ youth out of care, whether they're experiencing homelessness or are in juvenile detention or are experiencing incarceration in some other form. It's important that we center these experiences, particularly around this time. There's a lot more to come, so tune in on Thursday, December 10th. You can register now via our website, exchangeforchange.org, and keep an eye out for upcoming virtual exchange experiences in 2021. I'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Curry. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation, and 
congrats to both of you for this podcast and to our entire group of LGBTQ plus young leaders that have put together the Exchange for Change and are leading all of this. It's really wonderful and exciting to see the change that's already happening in the information and education and engagement that we've already seen. So I'm really excited. Thanks for sticking with us. And now it's blooper time. Make sure you say what NAC is. Iowa National Association of Council for Children. See, Elliot, you're just like ready to be like the NPR reporter. Somebody says, you know, like an abbreviation, they go, (laughs) National Association of Council for Children. And then the person (laughs) continues. May well have been my radiator. We're in that uh, that period of New York City living where you have to control your, you know, whether your house is like a greenhouse or like right. the Arctic by opening okay. and closing your window. I don't hear it now, so my apologies. But pause and go get. Okay. I'm gonna pause. Elliot, cut that out. Um, <laughs> they're not your kids. Also, an editor's note: I'm putting transition music here. Great. Bling. Bling. I love that. Thank you.